everyone. Welcome to the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast, where mistakes are welcome, nothing is off limits, and growth is inevitable. I am Sharissa Wood. I'm Brittany Simon. And we are putting our brains together to bring you the tools you need to elevate your hygiene practice, build amazing team culture, and provide patients with the very best care. Our mission is to help empower and equip every hygienist to practice purposeful, profitable hygiene. We look to guide you on your journey towards career fulfillment by providing support, collaboration, and community to our profession. As two of the top producing hygienists in the country, we know firsthand that these things lead to sustainable and fulfilling practice and the happy side effect of high profitability. So let's get to it. Hello, and welcome back to another week of Bulletproof Hygiene. We are excited to have you joining us this week, and we are really enthused and excited to be back again with Tom Viola, our resident pharmacological expert. And today we are talking about anti-anxiety depression medications. And I feel like this is a really big topic because I know we are seeing these multiple times daily as we are reviewing our medical history. And I wanted to just talk a little bit about prevalence in the United States, because I think this will settle that we're all kind of inundated with this. But according to the ADAA, which is the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the US, affecting 40 million adults. That's 19% of the population aged 18 and older every year. And as we know, a lot of these patients are addressing these conditions with the use of medications. And the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services issued a report, and this came out in September of 2020, that during the years 2015 and 2018, 13.2% of adults age 18 and over used antidepressant medications within the past 30 days. And the use was higher among women, which is 17.7% than men, which is 8.4%. And then we've got to consider because that report came out in 2020. And we know that there's been a significant impact from the pandemic on anxiety and depression. So there's definitely been a pandemic effect. And there was a study that came out that showed Just during the early stages of the pandemic in February and March of 2020, there was a 21% increase in antidepressant, anti-anxiety, and anti-insomnia prescriptions. There was a report published in JAMA Internal Medicine that estimates one in six American adults takes at least one psychiatric drug over the course of a year. This report also found that over 80% of those taking these medications reported long-term use, which experts say is concerning since some of the drugs are recommended for shorter use and carry a number of serious risks. So Tom, talk to us. What do we need to know? Because I will say, as I was kind of preparing for this podcast, I was overwhelmed by the number of different drug classifications that are used to address these issues. Yep. I'm glad, uh, Chris, you started off with some uh, statistics because, and as you were Speaking, as I was hearing you give me the same information, I was chomping at the bit to say, don't forget the past three years with COVID. But, uh, you know, it's it's certainly uh, had its effect. I know personally uh, a lot of people who uh, now use uh, anti-anxiety agents and antidepressant agents uh, and, and hypnotics for sleep more so than ever as a result of that pandemic effect. You know, it's had a great effect on the mental well-being of, of Americans. And I would also like to say, because we're going to spend a lot of time tonight talking about uh, the different medications, 
let's not forget that a lot of our patients self-medicate for anxiety with cannabis. I mean, marijuana is a medication that's widely available. It's socially, politically, you know, legally accepted. And a lot of people, especially young people, believe that they can self-medicate for things like anxiety safely uh, with marijuana or cannabis, because at this point, cannabis has that acceptance, but also because it's considered natural, mm -hmm. uh, especially if it's purchased at a dispensary. Gummies seem innocuous enough, you know, certainly, you know, and so you kind of get that feeling that, okay, they can self-medicate, but maybe they're medicating the symptom, but really not treating the underlying condition. And that's what I think is something I hope that the people listening to this podcast get that uh, that's that saying, you know, got to walk a mile in somebody's shoes before you get to know them, you know, and that's why in the little time we have at each point, we really got to try our best. Not that we're a trained psychologist, but we have to get a sense of their mental status as well as their mental state. You know, what's their approach? If they're that anxious about everything else going on in their lives, whatever their burdens are, going to see a hygienist or a dentist in the office just adds to that anxiety. True. Very true. So one thing that I know we're all so familiar with is hygienists. And, you know, we all learned this in school. And I, you know, to be honest, I'm 26 years into my career. There's a lot of new medications that weren't out when I was in school. Yeah. So there's a lot of new stuff that we've got to really stay abreast of. But one of the big things we know is, you know, there are a lot of oral manifestations that come with using these types of drugs. So I wanted to make sure we touched on that tonight as far as what we need to be looking for, the conversations we need to have with our patients about that. You know, one of the points that I talked about when I was reading the statistics is a lot of patients take these much longer than was initially indicated. And so, you know, what does that look like to them down the road? Let's break them down by class, okay? Let's break the drugs uh, down by class so it's easier to kind of group them together in our minds. Uh, I look at, at these medications from a, a 10,000 foot level, okay? And say, okay, the different classes of medications are distinct, but they're sometimes used interchangeably. Uh, so when we talk about traditional anti-anxiety agents, in my day, if you're a seasoned pharmacist like me, you remember the days of the barbiturates like phenobarbital and nembutal and all those drugs, but those drugs are gone now. And what we really have are, are sedative hypnotic agents, uh, which we like to call the benzodiazepines. The more familiar names would be like Valium, Ativan, Xanax, Halcyon, okay? And they're called that because at low doses, they can sedate you. And at higher doses, they can cause a hypnotic effect, you know, meaning sleep reducing. Uh, we're very familiar with those drugs in dentistry because we use them all the time. We use them for, you know, pre-op sedation, you know, pre-op anxiolysis, but we also use them in the, the operatory if we're doing sedations, conscious sedation or minimal oral sedation. We use the benzodiazepines and, and that's why they're so widely used and so common because they straddle the border between treating anxiety and treating insomnia. But let's not forget, there are true anxiolytics, a drug like Buspar, for example, Buspirone is specifically for anxiety, has nothing to do or will not treat any insomnia. And on the other side of the coin, we have true hypnotics like drugs like Ambien and Lunesta, which a lot of people are familiar with. And, and those are true hypnotics. They just designed to help you sleep. But the bottom line is whether our patients are using uh, those drugs for whatever reason, there are specific issues associated with them. So, so number one, they're not just used for anxiety and insomnia. They could be used to treat seizures. They can be used to treat alcohol withdrawal. So we don't know. And that's why we always go back to that same three questions. Remember, Chris, we talked about it. What do you take? Why do you take it? And did you take it today? You know, we, we want to know before we jump to conclusions, you know, why they take those medications. Now, 
I can't say there's real oral manifestations from these this class of drugs. I can say, you know, xerostomia for sure, but I can also say more than likely it's sedation. So your patient may be more lethargic in the chair than, than normal. But what gets a lot of hygienists and, and dentists a little of the concern is the amnesic effect. So these drugs cause what's known as anterograde amnesia, uh, which means, you know, you take the drug and then for the next few hours, you're not writing to the hard drive. Okay, you experience the whole thing, but it's gone all of a sudden. Like that Word document you worked on for eight hours and forgot to save, okay? That kind of thing. And then there's the notable sleep activities, things like uh, sleep walking, sleep talking, sleep eating, which is what I blame my two-month pregnancy on. Some people could say otherwise, but that's my excuse. So it may not be a true oral manifestation, but it can affect the quality of life. And, and as you said, it's so aptly put, the folks are using these medications way too long. And, and the problem is we don't know what the effect on REM sleep is. Some people achieve true REM sleep with these medications. Some people do not. And we don't know the long-term effects on their well-being uh, if they don't achieve REM sleep on a regular basis. I was curious about that, actually, um, about some of the true hypnotic medications. And you mentioned before, Sharissa mentioned before, that a lot of these are designed to use on a short-term basis, but a lot of people end up using them long-term. Can you elaborate any on what studies have shown regarding REM sleep, or is it really just that it's inconclusive? Like some people can achieve REM sleep and some people can't. Is it a higher likelihood that someone will achieve REM sleep? Because if a person is taking this sort of drug, clearly they're having an issue sleeping, so they may not be achieving REM sleep when they're not taking it. But I'm just wondering if it inhibits or if it's, you know, if it's only designed for short-term use, not long-term use, like what would the outcome for our patients be? It's a very good question. But you know, I'll tell you that we don't know. It's very idiosyncratic. It's hard to say because it's been inconclusive as to whether or not patients achieve REM sleep because we don't have patients in sleep studies every night, right? So we don't know on a regular, and that's exactly the point, on a regular basis, taking these medications routinely. We don't know long-term if that affects their REM sleep or not. There have been some studies, but again, most, in my opinion, if I remember correctly, um, mostly inconclusive. I will tell you that these drugs are, um, as many people would tell you as well, you know, somewhat uh, habit form. So, so there is a, a certain amount of, of reliance or dependence on the medication at some point. And I, I would say, again, without knowing too much about individual uh, responses, some people find it that if they don't take the medication, they get rebound insomnia where, you know, they try to wean themselves off. They don't take the medication and now they can't sleep at all. So it's, it's a catch 22 for a lot of folks. And I don't blame folks for, you know, taking it every night thinking, well, I'm going to at least get some sleep. I'd rather get some sleep than none at all. Mm -hmm. What is the long-term effect for Patients, you know, you mentioned self-medication earlier with cannabis, but I know there's a lot of patients that self-medicate for specifically for sleep with a lot of the Tylenol PMs and a lot of these over-the-counter kind of medications. What are you seeing or what do you know about the long-term ramifications of, of, you know, relying on something like that? Good question. And that was going to be one of my last points, but I'm glad we talked about it now. You know, everyone out there thinks, well, let's go with Tylenol PM. Advil PM, Salmonex, you know, Unisom. Let's go with the over-the-counter sleep aids because first of all, there's this idea that they're not happy for me. Second, they wouldn't sell them over the counter if they weren't safe. Again, this is the, the general consensus, but I always say, well, they sell rat poison over the counter too. So let's not get too far along the, the walk there. But also they're considered, you know, 
safe to take because lots of people take Advil PM or, or Tylenol PM when they have difficulty sleeping. Now, I'll tell you that sometimes it's not the diphenhydramine in the Tylenol PM or the Advil PM that's actually doing the job, but more likely the Tylenol, the Advil, treating whatever nagging pain is keeping these folks awake. But taking Tylenol PM or Advil PM on a long-term basis, no one's there in the Walgreens or the, or the CVS in the aisle saying, you know, don't take too much of that. So, you know, one is good, two is better, three is freaking awesome. And, and so people tend to take more thinking, well, you know, they want to get some sleep. Uh, but high doses of uh, diphenhydramine can actually cause arrhythmias in some cases, not, not in one or two or three capsules, but in very high doses. But for those people that are prone to arrhythmias, I'm not sure I'd want to take, you know, more than maybe one or whatever the label recommends you take. Uh, what concerns me also is that it's not just diphenhydramine. Doxylamine is also another ingredient that's available over the counter. And again, that's an histamine as well. And then, you know, let's not forget everyone's reliance on, on natural remedies like melatonin. Uh, and I've seen a lot of cases of melatonin toxicity from folks who themselves or give their kids too much melatonin to, to try to get some, some sleep. And unfortunately, there's no one there at the, the health aid store. Again, the Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, they don't take too much, you know, melatonin. Isn't it possible to, like, if you are overdosing yourself on melatonin to cause a depression issue, doesn't it influence, like, how you feel during the day regarding mood? Absolutely. Another I'm, issue I'm, for people. Right, Brittany, and that's the thing. So now put that person in a stressful situation, like in a hygienist chair, and, and that, that could manifest into behaviors that are inappropriate or, you know, at least unexpected. Uh, and let's let's not forget also that if, if nothing else happens, maybe they've got daytime drowsiness now because... Okay, you can't sleep, right? When do you finally cave in and take the medication? Okay, if you don't take it on a regular basis, you probably take it at like 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. because you're just exhausted and need some sleep. Okay, well, now you'll have a latent effect of that medication, which means in the morning you've got to drive somewhere and you've got to maybe operate machinery of some kind. So there's a lot of hazards associated with using these medications, which is why they're often prescribed for short-term use only. PRN, if you will. Yeah, um, I want to switch over to some of the other types of drugs used. Um, I know beta blockers are one that we see, which tends to block epinephrine response. So one, one question I had on that front is, you know, for those patients, I would think that's one thing we want to be very mindful when we are using anesthetics on them, because if they've already got something that's blocking epinephrine response, does that play into us using an anesthetic with an epinephrine in it? Or is that a different activated that's response? Good question, Chris. So keep in mind, and this is my saying, I've never coined it. I know um, people use it, they can use it freely. But in my opinion, lately, beta blockers are the new Xanax. Uh, a lot of doctors prescribe beta blockers to treat anxiety and treat stress uh, because they're not habit forming and because they, they have that depressant effect on cardiovascular system, which has this reflex depressant effect on the central nervous system. Uh, now, in the older days, again, if you're a seasoned veteran like me, you remember the non-selective beta blockers like propranolol, which a lot of women and men still use to treat migraine headache and, and uh, sometimes uh, uh, tremor uh, and even sometimes vasovagal issues. Uh, but that, that would be an issue, at least theoretically, because using epinephrine in a patient who's taking a non-selective beta blocker would mean only alpha effect, and that could raise their blood pressure and pulse, although it's really never been seen uh, very, very often. 
most people today use selective beta blockers like metoprolol and atenolol, which really don't have that effect on, on epinephrine, thank goodness. Uh, but, but on that topic, we should really be talking then about the, uh, the true antidepressant agents, which are also used as anti-anxiety agents. And, and some of them are, you know, like tricyclic antidepressants. You've heard of them in the past. You really don't remember what they are. Amitriptyline would be the best example of that, which a lot of people use for migraine headache, neuropathy. Again, what do you take? Why do you take it? You know, you're always asking those questions. Uh, but the newer version of those drugs would be what we call the SNRIs, like a drug like venlafaxine or Effexor, uh, which is designed to, to inhibit the reuptake of both norepinephrine and serotonin in the brain. Uh, they also uh, find use in treating other things like neuropathy. So Cymbalta, which is in that same class, duloxetine, would also be useful in treating chronic pain, uh, my, myofascial pain, fibromyalgia. So again, boy, I can look at 10,000 filt level and, and put them in little buckets, but it gets blurry as you get close to the sea level because they're used interchangeably for so many things. Um, the, the more common in that class would be the SSRIs, and they would be things like Lexapro, Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil. Uh, those drugs are serotonin specific, right? They only select, selectively uh, re inhibit the reuptake of uh, serotonin in the brain. Uh, but Again, that's just serotonin. There are other drugs out there that affect other neurotransmitters. So bupropion, which is familiar to a lot of hygienists because it was used for smoking cessation for quite a while under the brand name Zyban. It's really now sold under just a generic name. Uh, and even a drug like trazodone, uh, Desirel, which is used almost exclusively for insomnia now. Here's why I feel for hygienists though. You're the hygienist. It's been years since pharmacology class. You don't know what this drug trazodone is. You look it up and the first word that pops out at you from the, the database is it's an antidepressant. And you're going down this road. In the meantime, the patient's using it for something completely different. So that's why it's important to ask the three questions. What my experience has shown me about these medications though is number one, and not just antidepressants, right? They're also anti-anxiety agents. So first things first, we can't assume the patient's dealing with either one, okay? We don't know for sure, we'd have to ask. But uh, we can certainly count on things like central nervous system depression, depending on the drug, sometimes stimulation, depending on the drug. So lots of people who first time Lexapro users will tell me they can't sleep for days. Mm. But the one thing they never fail to mention because they know I'm somehow involved in dentistry is, man, I can't stop gritting my teeth, clenching. I do it all day uh, and I don't know why I'm doing it. And, and that is, so, you know, in the textbook, you're gonna see it listed as bruxism, but between you, me and the lamppost, you know, it's not that of course, it's clenching mostly during the day. And then these are the folks that end up with things like TMJ issues, right? Myofascial banding, pain, right? In their head, overdeveloped masseters so they can't open past the two fingers. So you can't even see what's going on in there, right? Then you've got, Fractures, cusp fractures, crown fractures, vertical fractures, uh, not, and they have xerostomia, they need appliances. It's wow, that's a hygienist's you know, full plate right there. What, what drives that clinching? What is that? What's the chemistry? What's the, do you know what it is about these that drives that? The only things, I, 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 the information is sketchy on it. 
Uh, I would say that the information I've read says it has something to do with the level of serotonin in the brain. As serotonin rises in the brain, certain parts of the brain are activated before others. Did, and did you so, say that? I'm so sorry. Did you say that that drug is a stimulant? Did you say that um, Lexapro is? Yep. In some cases, it can cause difficulty sleeping. Yeah. That's because interesting. Of that, activating certain certain parts of the brain in different orders, and and that reaches to a, a even higher level when you realize that because these drugs activate certain parts of the brain in, in orders that we're not really familiar with in advance, uh, that's one of the reasons why is the, these drugs, ironically, even though they used to treat depression and anxiety, are likely to cause suicidal ideation in users in the first few weeks of therapy. Uh, you know, what more cruel irony could there be? You're taking this medication, you've finally reached out to your doctor, you want to take a drug for your anxiety or your depression, and the first few weeks of therapy, before you see any real benefits, you're dealing with suicidal thoughts. Uh, and so this is where I think hygienists, I, I've said this, you've heard me say it, both of you've heard me say it many times, this is where you save lives, you know? Uh, and if I didn't, if I said this before, Chris, uh, forgive me, but I, I keep saying it over and over again, be the bartender, right? As a bartender in college, what did I learn? Learn when to listen, learn when to speak, right? Listen. If you're, I've got depressive thoughts that lead to suicidal ideation. If I have anxiety, it leads me to suicidal ideation, like all hope is lost. I may not tell my clergy person, my family members, my close friends, but I might tell someone I don't know very well, but who's willing to listen and who's approachable, like a hygienist. And all you need to do in that situation is when you hear those words, speak, right? In suicide prevention hotline, we give them that. If they're if they're transgender, give them the information for the Trevor Project. You know, give them the resources they need because this is your opportunity to save a life. I, it's happened three times in my career, and the one time I didn't listen, I lost somebody. So every time I think about this, I I have to say this as many times as I can. Listen to your patients. If they say things that sound like they're going down that road, don't be bashful. Don't withdraw push forward and, and that's how you could save a life. Yeah, talk to us about, because I'm, I'm sure that all of us have bumped up against this. And I will say just um, last week alone, I saw multiple patients that have five to seven medications that they're taking. And one to two of them are anti-anxiety or anti-depression drugs. Now, like you said, some of them are not necessarily for that purpose, right. but when you start grouping, you know, you've got this mountain of medications that are being taken and us as hygienists don't always understand the interactions of all of these. And I'm not even sure medical science always thinks that through, but how do we process that information? Again, I know, like you said, to ask the patient, why are you taking this? How long did you take it today? All those questions. But especially when we're starting to see all these oral manifestations, you know, the dry mouth, the clenching, the grinding, and all, you know, we're having all these conversations. What recommendation can we make to patients just to make sure that they are staying balanced and everything is, is truly healthy and they're not having compounding effects? Couldn't have said it better. You know, I'm dealing with anxiety. I'm dealing with depression. Again, I don't know that person until I walk a mile in their shoes. I don't know what burdens they carry. On top of that, I have to clenching and issues with, you know, myofascial pain and headaches. And it's, it's cruel. The best thing a hygienist can do in that situation is tell them it's normal. Tell them it's okay. Tell them, you know, I've treated hundreds of patients and, and, and people have this, this, this reaction to medications. 
talk to your pharmacist, talk to your doctor, talk to me. I'm the hygienist. I'll tell you, you know, that th these sort of reactions are normal. Now, I will say that clenching and, and, and bruxing, if you want to call it that, are, are bad enough. But when we, when we start getting into the, the class of medications that are known as psychotherapeutic agents, and you might've seen things like, you know, Risperdal or Zyprexa or Seroquel or Bilify, these are medications that people take to bump up the efficacy of their antidepressants, sometimes. Sometimes they are used straight for, you know, schizophrenia, psychosis, bipolar disorder. But keep in mind that those drugs have the tendency to cause what we call, well, everybody calls it something different. I call it extrapyramidal syndrome, okay? Or some people call it dystonic reactions. Basically, it's a loss of motor control and it's involuntary. And it typically affects small muscle groups like, so my, my only example, if you will, I can give you or analogy would be ticks, facial ticks. Uh, maybe something akin to um, where, where someone just ticks involuntarily uh, for no reason, uh, or, or, or maybe because they, they do it to relieve some type of tension uh, that's built up in their muscles. Uh, so maybe something like Tourette's in a way. Uh, but the problem is that 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 is an issue for hygienists because those dystonic reactions affect the tongue, the jaw, the neck. So patients can spasm, you know, they can spasm their face, spasm their neck, jut their tongue out or not hold their tongue in position. You know, they can't, it's an involuntary movement. And, you know, you're using pretty sharp instruments and you're counting on the patient to hold still and keep their tongue in one place. And, and that becomes a challenge for, for a hygienist using, you know, high-speed instruments uh, and, and caratrons and so on. And, and that could be dangerous in a patient who has involuntary movements that are unpredictable. Now, those, that, that syndrome, as, as it's called, extrapyramidal syndrome or symptoms, uh, can progress to the point where, you know, stop taking the medication and those symptoms might disappear, but then you're dealing with your original condition being untreated. So a lot of people stay on these medications for years, especially if they find one that works, they're going to stick with that drug no matter what. And it's the same thing with the antidepressant medications. I, I can tell you about the myofacial banding and the, and the TMJ and all that stuff. I would wouldn't waste one second in my mind thinking I'm going to tell that patient to stop taking it. If that medication works for them, I'll work around all that other stuff to keep them on their medication. But with psychotherapeutic drugs, that can progress to what we now call tardive dyskinesia, which is where even if you stop the medication, those involuntary movements continue. And that is very troubling for patients uh, because they now don't have a way to, to stop those, those facial movements and, and think about it. You know, they're, they're dealing with other stresses, they're dealing with other issues, and now they have this too. So here's what I've learned as a pharmacist. When patients have tardive dyskinesia that affects their jaw especially, what do they do? They chew gum. That's what they do because that can help mask the symptoms. And so I see, you know, I'm not really looking closely at you, it just looks like you're chewing gum, but really you've got this, you know, you've got this facial uh, movement going on. Well, we all know that chewing gum long-term isn't the best for our teeth, right? Especially it can, it can, you know, 
cause more tension in the jaw, more issues. So, uh, and hopefully it's sugar-free gum, or at least it contains uh, xylitol. But I wanted to make everyone aware of that, that this, this does happen to patients and they may not be so willing to come forward and tell you. You'll know it when you're working on them, but they may be embarrassed to mention it. Yeah, talk to me about um, what we need to think about for these patients that are taking, you know, kind of these classes across the board when we are preparing for a sedation type appointment. So, okay, remember that some people take these medications the way they're supposed to because they've been prescribed. And some people take medications like the benzodiazepines recreational. Happens, okay? So my, my thought process is always this. Number one, I know, again, what do you take, right? Find out what they're taking, whether it be by prescription, recreational use, whatever. Keep in mind that the same drugs that we use for anxiolysis and conscious sedation are the same drugs they may be taking recreationally. They don't mention it. Well, that's a problem because now you fall into sedation deeper than I would have wanted you to because they didn't know you were taking the other medication. Uh, it may be hard for, to, arouse, to arouse you now. I may be more concerned about your airway. You know, you've, you've fallen deeper into sedation than, than really I can handle in an office. So if I'm the dentist in that situation, I'm concerned. But on a slightly different road here, as the hygienist, I think you, we, we need to approach this with, if you see a patient taking any one of these medications, you've got to mentally take a step back and say, whatever apparitions, whatever appearance there is of everything from dystonic reactions to clenching, to, it's all normal. It's all normal. You're, you're going to react as if you've seen it a million times and you're going to encourage them to see the physician to talk about what they might do to change therapy if, if, if that's bothering them. Dropping that their defense, keeping it on, on the level of, I've seen this a million times. I'm not, I, 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 that's okay. That doesn't disturb me. Opening up that dialogue with them will help them open up to you and say, yeah, this really bothers me. I'm really embarrassed by it. What can I do? And that's when you encourage them to see the physician, you know, but, but that doesn't mean any of that stands in the way of you doing your job, which is, you know, providing good care and recommending good hygiene practices when they get home. Yeah. I kind of make it a point, especially when I've had some patients that have started up, you know, I, I see Wellbutrin a lot these days and I'll have a patient, you know, that has switched from like a, a Prozac to Wellbutrin and I'll, you know, and I ask, you know, how's that working for you? How are you feeling? Does that seem like that's an improvement? Are you noticing any side effects? Do you have any dry mouth? You know, just kind of checking in on them to make sure, because I feel like it's a lot like blood pressure medication. You know, I see patients that are taking blood pressure medication and they're still ridiculously high, you know, and I first verify, are you actually taking this? And if the answer is yes, you know, I want you to go back and see your physician because there's a lot of different options out there. It may be that you guys need to adjust the dosage. It may be a different drug works better for you. And I think the same thing in, in this category as well is it's okay to check in with our patients and say, Hey, is this working well for you? Because if it's not, we don't want you know to, you to keep taking this. It's probably not great for your system. So I like to just check in with them on that too. Absolutely. You know, the best, the best thing you could possibly do is show concern. Yes. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've been in and out of doctor's offices because uh, this time of year for me, it's quiet and it's right between semesters. So this is where I get all my medical care done all at one time. And you get a real dose of, wow, does anybody care? You know, it's, it's almost like you're rushed in, you're rushed out. 
But when I go to see my hygienist, albeit she is a former student, so maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm getting preferential treatment, or maybe she dislikes the fact that I gave her a C on that paper. I'm not sure exactly. But point is, when I go see her, she treats me better than anyone has ever treated me in healthcare. And that's why I love her so much, because she, she does everything I would expect and more. But to be honest, every hygienist I've had has done that. You know, I, I think that's the point. Yeah. I would say this, though, when you brought up the drug Wellbutrin, just as one other side note here, keep in mind, it is also used to treat addictions. Everything from gambling to alcohol to sex addiction, you name it. So if you're going to mention it, great. I think you should. But don't be surprised if they're using it to treat an addiction, you may not actually get that answer. And they may not know that that drug they're using for their addiction is also an antidepressant. Now, in the world of the internet, I'm sure a lot of people look this stuff up and they'll probably know it. But if you think it's going in an uncomfortable direction for them, then, you know, at least, like I said, check in with them and see how it's working for them. Is there anything that we need to be mindful of or know when we are considering what kind of anesthetics to use, local anesthetics in, in any interactions that we should be aware of? I love this because, you know, whenever you read this in a, in a textbook or a drug reference, it says uh, use epinephrine with caution. So what does it mean? You walk in the operatory, you know, like this, like cautiously. <laughs> I'm being cautious. Stop. Like, what, what does that mean? Use it with caution. It means, you know, use it. But but keep in mind that maybe you should try to keep the doses low, you know, use a, a higher percentage, like uh, maybe like a four percent articane or, or a prilocaine with epi, if you're going to use epi, you know, to get a greater anesthetic effect with less epinephrine. Uh, there's, the, the, the point is epinephrine could be problematic, but not necessarily. And, and so you can look at it from two perspectives. Okay, I don't want to use too much epi because I heard it could be a problem with a patient taking this medication. Okay, but if you don't use enough epinephrine and the anesthesia is now not profound enough and you cause them pain, that could be bad for them because that could exacerbate their anxiety or, or their, their depression. So it, it really goes both ways. Uh, I would say use epinephrine in the, in the amount you're comfortable using and monitor the patient. And if you find that the patient becomes very hypertensive, becomes anxious, you know, they, they're, they become diaphoretic, then, you know, next time, you know, as long as it's not a medical emergency this time, you know, next time to, to make a note to yourself and for any other hygienist that treats that patient thereafter, to you know, use low dose epinephrine, maybe the one to two hundred thousand dilution now, instead of the one to one hundred thousand dilution. Now half as much epi means twice as much anesthesia can be used to get the same effect. So why not? You know, that's that's the beauty. Mm -hmm. I'd also like to mention because we're on that same topic. Remember that anti-seizure medications can be used to treat certain central nervous system conditions as well. Uh, so a drug like Topamax can be used to treat migraine headache. And um, gosh, a, a drug like uh, Lamictal can be used to treat mood disorders. Uh, and uh, gosh, a drug like, um, there's, there's even um, the Depakote, sorry, I couldn't come up with it. Depakote is used to treat ADHD. So you might say, okay, look at drug up, it's an anti-epilepsy medication. This patient has epilepsy. No, they do not. Again, it's the three questions, right? Don't fall into the trap because it's easy, right? What do you take? Why do you take it? Did you take it today? and make sure that you're fully aware, keeping in mind, and the reason I mentioned it is because local anesthetics, lower seizure threshold potential. And these drugs can alter seizure threshold as well. Again, not likely because the amount of anesthesia you're gonna use in a hygiene appointment is probably not gonna be significant enough to have that effect. 
But patients who don't take their medications the way they're supposed to, who take medications at higher doses than, than what's recommended for seizures because they're trying to treat something else like migraine headaches, well, they may be at risk for or, or have a higher potential for a seizure uh, than you might realize. So know your patient means, know their medications and, and use both epinephrine and local anesthesia in a, as low a dose as possible, but yet enough to achieve that profound effect. Awesome. Brittany, any other thoughts or questions on your end? No, I mean, I'm, I'm always curious about the long versus short-term like effects of using some of these drugs. And I know that we don't make recommendations in regards to these. Um, I don't, I don't know. I just think of the REM sleep question, like the difficulty coming off of drugs or switching drugs. And should we be sensitive to that? Should we be asking questions regarding like side effects of switching, like let's say from one antidepressant to another, or is that kind of out of our scope? Like, should we just be there like as an empathetic listening ear or like, like Sharice's question, how is that working for you kind of thing? Like, is it something you think that we should be checking in on as well? Like when someone is switching from one drug to another for the same issue? Doesn't hurt. As a matter of fact, I think yeah. it's great because I think that the, ultimately the patient, you know, again, every patient's going to be different, but I think in general, a patient hearing you say that would say, wow, you really, uh, you really paid attention to my drug therapy, huh? You really mm -hmm. paid attention. You knew that I was taking one drug last time. Even if they don't say it out loud, in their mind, they're thinking, this hygienist knows her stuff or his stuff. Mm -hmm. They actually paid attention to what, I was, what medication I was taking. So I think that can't hurt because it, it adds a certain level of credibility to you as the professional. Right. That you didn't just say, any change your medications and move right on. Okay, you looked at their medications, you saw there was a change, you mentioned it. I know right now there are hygienists out there doing literally this. I don't have time for that. Totally get it. And if you don't, you don't. But if you can make the time for it, it's going to go a long way in that patient's life and a long way in their impression of you. And overall, it makes you more valuable. And I, yeah. think, I think one of the reasons I do ask that is obviously I do care. Um, that's my number one. But also I think Unfortunately, and kind of unbelievably in the world we live in today, I almost feel like there's still kind of a stigma around taking these kind of med medications and patients can feel like not, not open to sharing. So I think if you just make it just a very easy conversation that you come across as, hey, support, like, you know, supportive, I'm so glad that, you know, that's working well for you, you know. I feel like that opens them up because we know patients come in very guarded. They don't want to give us all the information. They don't think it's relevant anyway. So right. if we can make that something that we, we are supportive on, then I think it opens a door for them to be willing to share other things down the road too. And they, they realize that it all connects, that there's reasons we're asking these things. So I think that they're more open with their information. Yeah. You, you've got to have a poker face as a hygienist. Yes. You got to be able to look at that person in your eye and say, ah, I've seen that a million times. And, and that way you, their guard goes down and they immediately feel like they can connect with you and talk with you. And believe me, that goes such a long way with a patient. I'm still a patient. I, I will never consider myself a true dental professional. I'm still a patient. And every time I get in, in the realm of a high, my hygienist or, or the dentist, if they speak to me like another human being, I immediately, my defenses go down, my guard goes down, I open up and I start talking. And that's when you get the real information. And that's when they see your value. That's when they see that you are indeed a healthcare professional and not just somebody that, you know, unfortunately people still think you just clean teeth. Right. Right. For sure.
Well, Tom, do you have anything else, any other pearls of wisdom we need to know on this topic tonight? I, all I can say is, again, listen to your patient, treat them like you would one, they were one of your members of your family. That conveys to them that that sense of, wow, this person actually cares about me. That's all your patient needs to love you for the rest of their lives and never want to leave you because you care. So, and I know you do. I know all the hygienists that I know. I see them at meetings. I'm with RDH on the one roof, ADHA. Last year, not this year, but every time I, I walk into a room full of hygienists, I can feel the care in the room. I know they care about their patients. So do it, you know, care. No matter how busy the schedule gets, don't let it get to you. Be that loving, caring person you know you are and everybody else knows too. Awesome. Well, those are phenomenal words to leave us with. So I'm going to charge our listeners to care this week and, and take the, the time to be the bartender. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for your time again, Tom, as always, it was amazing. We appreciate you. And for those of our listeners, we will catch you guys next week. Everyone have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Bulletproof Hedging Podcast. We hope you've had as much fun as we have. Don't forget to click subscribe for a lot more where this came from. We appreciate your support and promise to keep the hygiene gems coming. Keep track of upcoming Bulletproof Hygiene events by visiting bulletproofhygiene.com or download the Mighty Networks app and search Bulletproof Hygiene to stay connected. We want to hear from you.